There is an unseen hand. It's hard for us because the way that we are, we like to see something or feel something. That's just the way we are. There's a hand that is holding on to us that we cannot see. And that is what we must be trusting in. I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Micah, if you would please. Micah chapter 6. I want to speak to you tonight about a very important topic and hopefully give you an answer. I want to deal with a problem. It's not a new problem. It's an ancient problem, an age-old problem. It's a problem I have and one that you have also. At least at some point in time you've had it. Micah chapter 6. We'll read together the first nine verses. Hear, hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, or with Ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of, the war of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Lord's voice crieth, under the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? And may God bless the reading and hearing of his word. In the middle of this book of Micah, God is dealing with his people. In fact, it's interesting, we find that word, we Americans say, controversy. I think some British people say, controversy. So I don't know which way you say it, but you know what I mean. And the title of this sermon tonight is found right in the text. The Lord's Controversy. Or the Lord's Controversy. God has a problem with His people. Tonight I want you to just stop. It's important, especially before we gather around His table, to just stop and think. Is there anything between me and God? Does God have a problem with me? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like it if someone has a problem with me. 
It bothers me. It bothers me if someone is upset with me, if I've offended someone, if somebody's angry with me. It bothers me. I don't like it when there's a controversy between me and someone else. But I wonder, does it bother you that there may be something between you and God? As much as it may bother you that there's a problem, something between you and a friend, you and a brother, you and your husband or wife, as much as that may bother you, does it bother you that there might be something between you and God? I know a dear friend right now who's struggling in his marriage and he can't sleep. There's a problem in his marriage and he cannot sleep at night. He can't eat because there's something between him and his wife. Now that's natural. That's the way it should be. But do you feel that way when there's something between you and God? Are you walking in such communion with God and so close to God that when there's something between you and Him, you can't sleep and you can't eat and you can't enjoy the pleasures of life because there's a problem, a controversy. That's where we are tonight in this book. That's where God's people were. It's interesting, if you look at the very beginning of this book, the Bible says in the first chapter, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morastite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Listen to what God says. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me nervous. That God would be a witness against me. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his palace, and will come down. Now, would you just look this way for a moment? Sometimes we pray. I, I, I pray this sometimes. Sometimes I pray, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. But do you know when you, every time you read in God's word of God coming down, it's always in judgment. When you read of God rending the heavens and coming down, when you read here that he's coming out of his place and coming down to tread upon the high places of the earth, He's coming down in judgment. The mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. Why? For the transgression of Jacob is all of this. For the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? I will make, therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof in the valley and I will discover the foundations and all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. And all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate for she gathered it of the hire of a harlot, and they shall return to the hire of a harlot. The problem was, the problem that God had with his people was that these people 
were caught in idolatry. And you might be thinking tonight, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not living in idolatry. I don't worship a false god. I don't bow down before any other gods. I haven't made a graven image. But I submit this evening that most of us have some measure of idolatry in our lives. And if not now, we have had. And if we're not careful, we will have. Idolatry is when you put anything in the place of Almighty God. When you allow anyone or anything to take the love and adoration and worship that God alone deserves. I think very often, even at this time of year, we can be so distracted by all the festivities and activities that even that can become idolatry. I think that even people we love can become a distraction from the God we should love. I don't know about you individually or personally. I don't know what your problem is, but I do know that God takes idolatry extremely seriously. That it isn't something to shrug off or laugh about. It isn't something to say it's not that big of a deal because God is stepping out of His place He's coming down from heaven. He's putting his feet upon the mountains and the hills and they're melting beneath the anger and the hotness of his wrath. I think it's serious. Well, we live in a day of grace. Yes, praise God for his grace. Thank God for his mercy. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. There is idolatry. And for this reason, God calls his people into a courtroom. And he will be the one that stands as a witness against them. Can I just say, look here for a moment. Can I just say this evening, you can hide from me and I can hide from you, but we cannot hide from God. We cannot. And when God stands and witness against us, his people, Look, there's no hiding. There's no justifying our behavior or our sin. The Bible even says, look, call the mountains and call the hills, and you tell them. You explain to them. You try to justify yourself to them. Micah 6. And then God says something interesting. What have I done to you? What have I done to you that you would leave me? What have I not done for you that you would leave me and go after these other gods? That you would think so lightly of me? Sometimes I know I may react, overreact, and sometimes you may think I'm a little harsh, but when we, when we bow in prayer, when we come in a meeting like this, we should be seeking God. And it is a sobering thing, a very sobering thing. And I don't mean to be, I don't want to ever be legalistic about it. I believe there ought to be liberty and joy. But there also at the same time ought to be a measure of sobriety. And God says, what more could I have done for you that you could be so flippant and relaxed? I brought thee out of the land of Egypt. I saved you. Would you look here for a moment? Are you saved tonight? Have you been born again? 
Do you know what that means? Do you know the enormity? of our redemption that we would be dead in our sins unable to save ourselves and he would die for us do you understand how deep that is I brought you out of the land of Egypt I redeemed thee out of the house of servants I took you he said you were serving this world you were a slave to Egypt you were a slave to this world and its system you thought you were enjoying yourself. You were a slave to drink, a slave to filthy language, a slave to a, adultery and fornication. You were a servant and a slave, and I rescued you. I redeemed you. I bought you out of all of that. I paid for you. That's what he's saying. I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I gave you people to guide you so that you wouldn't be doing this alone so you'd have some guidance and direction I put people that you could trust they were men I know that God says there were men at best they were failures like any other men but they were yet men chosen by God to lead you I gave you this not only that but do you remember you remember the time that Balak the king of Moab do you remember this story he tried to hire this prophet to curse God's people do you remember that and God says, look, I want you to remember that the enemy has tried since the day you were redeemed to curse you. And I would not let him. Every day the enemy accuses you before God. And God will not have it. He would not let his people be cursed. But they curse themselves. And we've cursed ourselves. The enemy cannot curse us. The enemy has no power over us. We've been set free. We've been delivered. He is defeated. But how many times have we walked ourselves into a curse like Israel did? God says, this is my problem with you. And Israel responds in verse 6 and 7. Look at this. And I want you to hear the tone of Israel's voice. It's very flippant. I believe it's the tone of many of us today, it's been my tone before. Israel responds in verse 6. The people of God says, how can I come before the Lord? How can I come and bow myself? Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or ten thousands rivers of oils? Shall I give my own firstborn son? For my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. Do you know what Israel's saying? God, you're never pleased. May God ever keep, may keep that from our lips and from our heart. That we would ever say, Lord, you're never pleased. It's never enough. Because he's already pleased with his son. He is already satisfied with what Jesus has done. We've got the wrong mindset when we, when we try to, we throw up our hands and we act like God's never happy. We can't ever make God happy. God's always upset because we, no, the problem is we're trusting in ourselves, just like Israel was. And God responds in mercy. And these two verses have been verses that have been held to and used throughout the ages, and I want you to hear them. God responds, He hath showed thee, O man, 
what is good. And he has showed thee, O man, what doth the Lord require of thee. We're standing at the beginning of a new year, and none of us have any excuse. None of us, including me. He has shown us what is good. Has God not shown us what is right? Has he not shown us his goodness? Has he not shown us his mercy? Do we not know right from wrong? Are we like babes who have no conscience and no understanding or awareness and no mental faculties that have been developed? Are we that way? Of course not. He has shown us. We know what is right. We know what is good, not just right, but what is good. Do you know that there's a difference between what is right and what is good? What is right will always be right, but sometimes what is right doesn't feel good. But there's something even deeper than what is right. What is good? What is wholesome? Now, what is right is always good. And what is right is always wholesome. But there's much, much, much that is good that God has showed us. And how many times have we traded what is good for what is pleasurable and enjoyable? Because we thought that pleasure was the same as good. And we thought what was enjoyable was the same as what is good. And we thought that what was comfortable was equivalent to what is good. God has shown us what is good. There's no excuse. The same way that God called his people to the courtroom that day. And he said, look, I've shown you what is good. You know what is right. He hath shown the old man. It would do us good to circle those two words, O man, and put your name. He has shown the old Derek what is good. And he has shown thee what he requires of thee. Can I just say, none of us will ever be able to stand before God. None of us will be able to casually look God in the face and shrug our shoulders and say, I didn't know. You will not be able to stand before him and say, God, look, I was trying my best, doing my best. I didn't know what you wanted. I didn't know what you expected. He has shown us what is good and what he requires of us. Nobody likes expectations. Nobody likes requirements. I don't like them. I kind of kick against them. That's just my natural, my natural man. But God has shown us. And he summarizes, really, he summarizes in three expectations to his people. What he requires and expects of us. Look what he says. He has showed the old man what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly. What does God expect from us? We're entering into a new year. What does God want from me? Called. Called to the bar. Called to the court. Called to the courthouse with God. A witness against me. What does he want from me? What does he expect from me? And this year, this new year, what does God want from you? He wants you to do justice. 
to do what is right. But, you know, I understand that. And I know what's right. You're, you're right. You're cor- that's, that's correct. I know what's right. But, but I can't help the way I feel. When you have to choose between how you feel and what is right, you must choose what is right. You must. I must. Feelings are strong. I know that. Feelings are powerful. Emotions have a strength. They're like strong cords that bound Samson when his hair had been cut. But can I tell you, justice is like the power of God's Spirit. When Samson's hair was long, justice is able to break the strong cords of feeling that often bind us. We are not called to do what we feel. We are not commanded to do what feels good and seems right and it seems feels so good. We're not called to follow our heart. We're called to do what is right. Do justly. Everything you do ought to be justly. To do it rightly. To do it in a way that is pleasing to God. That's a legal term. To do all things legally. Not by the law of the land. But to do all things right before God. Do you know one of the hardest things in the whole entire world One of the most difficult things in life is to be able to live unto God. It's hard. Because most of the time we're battling between doing what we want to do or doing what somebody else wants us to do. We live that way, don't we? We're like a a yo-yo, back up and down between what we want and what somebody else wants. Trying to please ourselves and trying to please somebody else. And the truth is both of them are wrong. Our actions shouldn't be done to please ourselves or please anybody else. Our actions must be done to please God. That's the first thing He requires of you. And do you know, if we would change, if this year, if we would just make that adjustment, we would say tonight, by the grace of God, I'm not going to do anymore what makes me happy or anybody else happy, but I'm going to do what makes you happy, God. What pleases you, God. If we would make that one adjustment, I promise you, things will be different this year. God requires it of you. There's a second thing, to do justly, to love mercy. Now, it's interesting. He says, do justly, do what's right, love mercy. He doesn't say do mercy, because if you love mercy, you'll do mercy. What is mercy? Now, you'll never love mercy until you have received mercy. You will never love mercy. Here it has a twofold meaning. Mercy is, is recognizing. Here's what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. God shows you and I mercy every single day. The Bible says He has to renew His mercies every day because we are that twisted and broken. Do you know that? God every day has to take Yesterday's mercies, put them aside, 
and give us new mercy because we are in such need of mercy that if we had to run on yesterday's mercy today, we'd run out. That's how broken we are. Do you know that? We are so twisted and black and broken and depraved that if I had to live on yesterday's mercy, I'd be in a heap of trouble. I need new mercy today. And when you begin to recognize what God's mercy means to you and, and how it's been lavished on you, David says, according to thy loving kindness and thy tender mercy, blot out my transgressions. God's mercy is tender. There are so many things about mercy when you read the word of God that will blow your mind. Now, you know what my mercy, my mercy is different than God's mercy. When you have children, you begin to understand a little bit more about mercy because you, you see how many times, you, you see how many times someone can mess up. You see how many times someone can sin and actually do the same thing over and over again. It's frustrating as a parent. And you think, you want to shake your child and say, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing it again and again and again and again? And that's a, an, a perfect picture of what God deals with. That we sin like a dog returning to our vomit again and again and again. And we are in such need of mercy. And when you begin to realize God is showering his mercies, pouring his mercy, he has to or else we'd be consumed. Did you know, look here for a moment, the moment God turns his mercy off is the exact moment that you are consumed by his wrath. The only thing right now that's keeping you and I from being consumed by the fires of judgment is the mercy of God. It holds back his wrath. And when you begin to recognize that his mercy is protecting us and it's tender, it's not, God, doesn't, God doesn't say, like I do as a father, my mercy towards my children, that's where I was going a moment ago, my mercy is oftentimes given grudgingly, isn't it? I've got to, I can't believe I've got to speak to you about this same thing again. How many times do I need to say this? Here you go again. That's the way we talk as parents. But God's not like that. His mercy is tender. It's tender. And God says, here's what I expect from you. To do what's right and to love mercy. Twofold part of loving mercy. You love it from God. You love to receive it from God. You appreciate it. You recognize it. And therefore, when you do, you love to give it. You love to give it. You love it. And you love to give it because you love to receive it. You love to show mercy because... You, you are so thankful God has given it to you over and over and over and over again. You're, you, you and I have failed. I'm a failure over and over again. And I need his mercy over and over again. And therefore, I should not hesitate to give mercy to somebody else. I should not hesitate to say to somebody else, I know you've done it again. I love you. It's wrong. And I'll say it's wrong. But I still love you. I still love you. To do justly, to love mercy, 
The third thing he requires of me and you is to walk humbly with your God. What does God expect from you? Do what's right. No matter what. No matter how you feel. Love mercy. No matter what somebody's done to you. Love mercy. And thirdly, walk humbly with God. Now there's three parts to that. Walk humbly with your God. Walk, meaning this is active, this is practice, it's exercise, it requires an intentional effort. If you want to walk humbly with God, it requires some intentional change of mind and direction. Walk, it's a visual picture. Walking with God. Walking with God humbly. We oftentimes say it like this, how's your walk? You ever heard somebody say that? How's your walk with the Lord? What does that even mean? It, well, here's what it means. It means, are you walking with Him? Now, look, there's, there's, there's no confusion about the matter. I have children, as you know, and I sometimes walk. We just took a trip. We went to France for a day and then into the Netherlands just this weekend, this week. And in a different country, in a busy city, believe me, I held tightly to my children's hands. When we crossed roads, busy roads in Paris, I held tightly to my children's hands. They were walking with me. The older my children get, I want you to hear this. The older my children get, the less they want to walk with me. I constantly have to say to Micah, Micah. Don't get too far ahead. Micah, slow down. Not long ago, I don't know what we were doing and where we were going, but I said to Micah, Micah, I'm leading, not you. Now, I should have listened to my own words. Sometimes God should say to me, I'm leading, not you. Are you walking with God? To walk with God means you're next to him. He's next to you. Not you running ahead of him or lagging behind him, but you're in step with God. What's the scripture say? Can two, can two be agreed? Can two walk together except they be agreed? To walk with God means you're in agreement with God. Now, can I tell you, if you don't do expectation number one, you won't do expectation number three. If you don't do justly, you won't walk with God. If you're not doing what's right, then you won't be walking with God. The second, you, the second I choose pleasure over what is right is the second God has taken a step ahead of me and I've been left behind or vice versa. I've taken a step of him, ahead of him and he's gone a different direction. Walk with God. But there's something interesting in the middle of that. Walk humbly. Walk humbly. One of my favorite books I've ever read was the book on humility by Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray said this, here is the path to the higher life. Down, down, down. Now that's a contradiction. Here is the path to the higher life. You want to walk higher in your Christian life? You want to take steps up in your Christian life? Down, down, down. Now, I don't know if I've seen a wetter week of my life 
than I have this last week. But do you notice something? Do you notice where the water lays first? Do you notice where the water gathers first? Andrew Murray says, just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, the lowest place, so the moment that God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and bless. Just as we see the puddles all around us, the puddles on the road, and my children love it when there's big water puddles and we're driving down the road in my Jeep, they'll say, speed up, Daddy, speed up. So we can hit those puddles and the water rushing over us. The water fills the lowest places first. If you want God's power and blessing to be upon you, humble yourself before a mighty God. Walk humbly with your Lord. Murray said, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done against me. It's to be at rest when nobody praises me or when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around me and above me is trouble. That's humility. Murray said again in another place I can remember, he said, true humility is not thinking little of yourself, it's not thinking of yourself at all. Walk humbly. You know my biggest problem, my biggest failures are when I'm thinking too much about myself. I won't do the right thing as long as I'm thinking about myself. I won't love mercy as long as I'm thinking about myself because I'll think, you did me wrong, I'm going to give you what you deserve. I hear this in my children. If you ever listen to children, this is the way they think. This is the, the way they respond. It's in our human nature. This is why God had to make laws. God had to make a law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth because in our human nature, if somebody pokes me in the eye, I'm going to poke in both your eyes. I'm going to get you back and get you back more so you don't do it again. And God had to say, hold on a moment, you can only get back what they did to you. But Jesus took it a step further. Jesus taught us mercy. Jesus said, if you try to repay someone what they've done to you, you're no different than them. And can I tell you that unless you are not thinking of yourself, you'll never be able to live that way. You'll never be able to live a life of mercy. You'll never be able to give mercy to somebody else because you'll be constantly trying to get back at somebody because they did you wrong. And when somebody does you wrong, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to tell you something about yourself. And then we're just, we're just as guilty. True humility is not thinking about yourself at all. Spurgeon preached about humility and he gave a list of how to walk humbly. Let me give you a few of these things. Walk humbly when you are spiritually strong. Can I just give you a warning? We talked briefly about it this morning. If you feel that you're strong right now, you're strong in the word, you're strong in prayer, you're walking with the Lord, <coughs> you, you hear his voice, let me give you a warning. Walk humbly. Walk humbly. Walk humbly when you have much work to do. I'm busy, God, I got a lot of things to do. You better walk humbly because in your busyness you may forget God. You may run ahead of him. Walk humbly in all of your motives. Make sure you do what you do, not for your sake, but for the glory of God. Walk humbly in studying God's word, otherwise knowledge puffeth up. 
walk humbly when you are under trials or else you'll, you're bound to feel like you've been done wrong. Walk humbly in your devotions. Walk humbly between you and your brethren in Christ. If we don't learn humility, then the first time anybody tries to talk to us about something they see in our life, we'll blow up. Blow up. That's hard. I'm, I, I'm telling you, it's hard. It's hard. But do you know we have a responsibility to each other and accountability to one another that if, if we see one another falling in sin, then we ought to love each other enough to say something. But a brother can't say something to you about your sin if you blow up every time he does. You better walk humbly between you and your brethren. And if you don't approach your brother in humility, what did Paul say in Galatians? Brethren, if, if a brother be, brethren be overtaken... In a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the manner of meekness, humility. We ought to walk humbly towards our brethren and receive humbly what we hear from them. Spurgeon said, lastly, we ought to walk humbly when dealing with sinners. Walk humbly, knowing but, but for the grace of God there go I. Spurgeon said, true humility is getting a right perspective of yourself. When you have found out what you really are, you will be humble. For you are nothing to boast of. To be humble will make you safe. To be humble will make you happy. To be humble will make music in your heart when you go to bed. To be humble here will make you wake up in the likeness of your master by and by. That's what I want. And so God says to his people in the courtroom, this is what I expect from you. Do what's right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with me. Now he said that because two verses before, they were saying, God, it's never enough. That's not walking humbly. Walking humbly is, God, whatever you say, I'll do. Whatever you say, I'll do. That's walking humbly. The Lord's ver verse number nine, the, Lord, the Lord's voice crieth unto the city. This is the mercy of God. He's always pleading with us, always calling us, always pleading that we would return. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Now that's an interesting collection of phrases. They turn up in many different ways. They can be translated in many different ways. But let's look at them as they lay. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city. Look here. God's voice is crying to every one of us tonight. He's speaking to the church. And the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Now I'm going to take it just as it reads. I know there are other translations and versions. The man of wisdom shall see thy name. The one who's wise tonight will hear his voice see his name, recognize he's God, and that voice belongs to God, I must bow the knee, and look what he says next. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? The rod of correction. The rod of judgment. Hear it. It testifies against us tonight. Hear it, and know who's appointed it. I never like to be corrected. I never have. I never liked it when my mother corrected me. I always tried to 
justify myself, excuse myself. In fact, I became a very good liar when I was a teenager because I wanted to be right. I didn't like to be corrected. But can I tell you something? It's good for us to hear the rod of God and know where it come from. It's good for us to bow our heads in humility and say, God, that's me. I'm guilty. I've got false gods and idols that need to be torn down. I've got things in my life that are not right. And Lord, I know I have not done what's right. I have not loved mercy. I have not walked with you, God, and I haven't walked humbly with you, God. It's good to see the rod and bow to it. And let God change us. There is mercy tonight. There is mercy. And I want mercy rather than judgment, don't you? Take it. He extends it again tonight. How do you know? Because you're here. You're hearing it. You're alive. God hasn't cut you off. We talked last night about that thought in Luke chapter 13. One more year about the Lord visiting the tree that was fruitless year after year after year. And finally God saying, you know what? No, there's been no fruit for three years. Cut it down. It's cumbering the ground. And I don't know if I've reached that point yet or not. I don't know if I've, if I've had fruitless, too many fruitless years. And God said, enough is enough. You're not only doing what, what I have asked of you. You're not doing what I've required of you. But you're not bearing fruit. And therefore, I'm tired. It's enough. I don't know if I'm there yet or not. I hope I'm not. But I want to hear the voice of God. I want to hear the rod of God and recognize where it's come from. And I want to repent. I almost preached on repentance tonight. Perhaps I will next week. One of the favorite verses that is quoted, especially with evangelism, is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. And we love to quote that verse. But the other part of that verse is this. He's not willing that any should perish. But he's willing that all should come to repentance. You know what God desires? Repentance. Now you can't quote, look, God doesn't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to perish. You can't quote that unless you say the other half, God wants you to repent. That's what he wants. That's what he wants from me. That's what he wants from you. We're about to break bread to remember the Lord's death why he came to this earth and why he died was to purchase my salvation. May the Lord help us to know what the Lord requires of us and to do it. He's good. He's given us another reminder and he's given us another chance. What doth the Lord require of me? The same thing he requires of you. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with thy God. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for mercy. Lord, help, help me, help us to love thy mercy. Knowing that if it weren't for thy mercy, we'd, we'd, be, in, we'd be in hell a long time ago. If it wasn't for thy mercy, we'd have been consumed a long time ago. Help us to see it and to love it. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our idolatry. Forgive us, Father, for our false gods. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. And help us to know. Lord, you have shown us what is good. 
We have no excuse. We know what is right. We know what is good. We know what's good for us. And we know what's honorable and honoring to thee. And help us to do it, Lord. Seal these truths in our hearts that there might be some adjustments and changes made even tonight that may make an eternal difference. We thank thee, Lord, for the promise that thy blood doth blot out all our sins and iniquities. That although they may be fresh in our mind, thou hast chosen to remember them no more. And though we may bear the scars of our sins for the rest of our life even, they shall not be held against us in the court of the heavenly gathering on that day. We praise thee and thank thee for mercy, for the blood of the Savior which cleanses us from all our sin. Help us to do what's right, Lord. Help us to love mercy. Help us to walk humbly before thee. We cannot do any of this without thy spirit and without thy help. So we bow before thee tonight. We hope in true humility, trusting and resting in thee. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. And we pray that we might be amongst the wise who hear thy name and see thy name. And may we be those who exalt it, both in the way that we speak and the way that we live. May we be those who love the name of our dear Savior. And it's in his name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray these things tonight. Amen. Let's sing our final hymn, hymn number eight, I Hear Thy Welcome Voice. There's one thing about our Heavenly Father is that He is a welcoming Father, a good Father. Yes, a God of justice, a God of wrath and indignation, but a God of mercy. And He welcomes us. Wrath especially comes when we reject his mercy when we refuse to come I hear thy welcome voice that calls me Lord to thee for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary let's stand together I am coming Lord